it's almost like you can't keep yourself from being a cowboy or cowgirl, no matter where you're born. And if you were born into egg or not, you end up being a cowboy or cowgirl if that's what you were born to do. Today's episode is with Catherine Merck, an ag lawyer who specializes in estate planning. I actually came across Catherine on Instagram and was really, really drawn to her positive attitude and presence there. Before we hop in, just a couple of housekeeping things. I will be releasing this episode, next week's episode, and then taking two weeks off for Thanksgiving and Josiah's birthday, but will be re-releasing old favorites. I am also taking December 29th and January 5th off for the same reason. Holidays are really, really important in our family. We're going down to Josiah's parents for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I want to make sure that I'm devoting the time to my family that they deserve, but also devoting time to editing the episodes and sharing with you that my guests deserve. I also have stickers for the podcast. You can DM me anywhere on social media or shoot me an email at bulletcompany at gmail.com to get one. They're $3. They're really cute. I designed them if you want one. I'd love to send it to you. And and housekeeping there. Today we will get into Catherine's journey through jaw surgery, Miss Rodeo America Law School, as well as getting deep into her rodeo business, Rodeo Advantage. Next week we'll get into all the legal stuff, which is if you know me as like my favorite thing to talk about is crime and legal stuff. I am so pumped for this episode. She is just a radiant sunshine. Bear with me through four. Yes, four separate recordings due to technical issues in a rainstorm that happened while recording and my dog throwing up on me. So that's fun. But she kept a smile on her voice and I'm sure on her face and just shared so much of herself with me. So here we go. We'll hop into it and I hope you all enjoy. I'm Catherine Merck. I am an attorney, a cowgirl. I coach rodeo queens and created digital guides through my business, Rodeo Advantage, and have dedicated my practice of law to serving the Western industry. Love everything to do with rodeo, and you are going to learn a lot more about all of that pretty soon here. So let's talk about all the fun things. Yeah. So before we hop into all of the super fun things, let's talk a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Absolutely. So born and raised in Spokane, Washington, and my whole family is still in the Spokane Coeur d'Alene area. So I was actually born in, if anyone has ever been to Spokane, Washington, I was born by Manitou Park, which is the definition of a neighborhood. I mean, right in the middle of town, born in the city. I went to an inner city high school, which again, if you've been to Spokane, you're probably laughing. There were 400 of my graduating class, but so definitely don't have a traditional egg background at all. Uh, We had dogs growing up and I convinced my parents that I desperately needed a horse. And being the not only business people they are, but smart parents they are, they really wanted to make sure that this wasn't a phase and told me they would match me dollar for dollar to buy my first horse. And I really don't know if they thought that I was going to lose interest or if I was going to follow through or if they had any idea what they were in for, but they followed through on that promise. I followed through on my end of the deal. And my dad still jokes that if he could go back and tell himself, oh no, you shouldn't get horses, that he would. But in reality, he really does love them. My mom rides now too. 
but I started writing at about the age of 10. My mom started writing when I went to college. She likes to say that I left two horses with her and said, please take care of my babies. But she started writing and we actually competed together some. So that was how I got into horses and agriculture and the entire Western way of life even though I grew up in the city. And something that I think is really amazing and unique is I've had the opportunity not only to be a first-generation cowgirl and choose this way of life, but I've gotten to share that experience with my mom as well for us both to be first-generation cowgirls. And that's been something that's really special. That is really, really cool. I feel like a lot of people who choose into the life, right? They're not born in it. They don't get to have that experience with their parent where they're just learning it together and kind of figuring a lot of it out at the same time. Yes, it was really, really fun. I actually just, I talked to my mom while I was driving home after work before talking to you and she had just gotten off my, my rascal horse, my rony pony that I left at home with her. And it just makes me so happy because he is an amazing horse, but definitely far from a beginner horse. And I just love watching the fact that she's so much more confident now to be riding him and telling me all about it all by herself with me not there. And I just love that. It makes me so proud. Yeah, that is, that's just so cool. I, my favorite part of like doing this podcast is getting to hear kind of where everyone comes from because it I was actually really surprised at how many people that I've talked to where they're like no I chose into this from the outside you know and and it it is It, it amazes me and I love it and I love that I feel like in the digital age we have so much more of an opportunity to tell those stories to other people like us who are choosing this. And so they can have people to reach out to and say, Hey, I want to get into this lifestyle and they can have examples and people to help them and mentor them. Because I think that is the biggest barrier to getting into the Western way of life. It's just not even knowing where to start. Well, I was talking to, and I've touched on this with a number of my guests but one of my very very first guests that i was talking to she said that it's hard getting a lot of no's like no i don't want to help you no i don't want to give you advice but as she gets older and she's the same age as i am just about i think she's a couple years older than i am um as like our generation is getting older and learning more they're much like we're much more like willing to share we have like the ability to share for social media. So like if my next door neighbor says, no, I don't want to help you because I'm in competition with you, or I think you might be harmful to me and my business or for whatever other reason they may have, you can talk to somebody who's in Montana, in Texas, in Wyoming, in New York, right? Those people are all very accessible to you. Absolutely. It changes things so much. And I do have to tell you, because it still makes me laugh to this day, but my college admissions essay, which I went to the University of Notre Dame, which is why no horses got to come with me. But my admissions essay was titled The Cowboys Born, Not Made. And it was all about how I feel that there, there really are a lot of us out there that are cowboys and cowgirls at heart and aren't necessarily born into the lifestyle. But if you're born in cowboy, you find your way into this lifestyle. (laughs) 
And you might hear those no's, but sooner or later, it's going to come around and you can't, it's almost like you can't keep yourself from being a cowboy or cowgirl, no matter where you're born. And if you were born into egg or not, you end up being a cowboy or cowgirl if that's what you were born to do. Yeah. I feel like those of us who that's who they are, are drawn to some aspect of Western life, be it rodeo, ranching, um, being an attorney, et cetera. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about college. So you went to Notre Dame. Yes, I did. And I had big plans. I was originally only wanted to go somewhere where I could take a horse, but I am the youngest of two siblings. I went back to visit my brother. I want to say a week or so before the early application deadline. Um, retrospectively, it feels like about two days. And I'd done all these other college applications and I came home and told my mom, I'm going to Notre Dame. And she was like, um, maybe we should apply. Maybe you should. <laughs> and so that was, that was pretty funny. I, I will say I told my parents that after, you know, the gift of my amazing family and the, the horses that have been in my life and the opportunity to be in the Western industry that the, having a Notre Dame education and that entire experience is, is one of the gifts that I'm most thankful for, partially because it isn't just the education, the experience. It, it is a small school. A lot of people don't realize there's only about 8,000 in the undergraduate program. So you really know everybody. It's a very unique experience. And I've met some of my best lifelong friends. We still, you know, I think we talked about technology earlier and how it's changed things and made so many things more accessible. And the girls I live with, we get on Zoom at least once once a month and stay in touch. You know, a lot of a lot of us have, you know, people have gotten married. My roommate just had her fourth baby. I mean, life has taken us in so many different directions. We're all over the country, but just that gift of those friendships and that shared experience has been, that's been one of the most wonderful things. I mean, they were a group of the girls I lived with were actually in downtown Manhattan in a bar watching on their computer when I won Miss Rodeo America. And I just think that is the funniest thing and how our lives have gone in so many different directions, but truly amazing, those shared experiences, bringing us together. And if you've ever met other Notre Dame people, we are really all obsessed. So it's like you meet another Notre Dame person and you know they're as obsessed with Notre Dame, so then you're friends with them immediately. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> what years were you there? I was there from 2008 to 2012. Okay, so your time wouldn't have overlapped. There's um, someone I went to high school with wound up going there, but he would have been a freshman your final year. So probably maybe didn't know each other. But what was your degree in, your undergrad? I graduated in, well, with a degree in finance and in medieval studies. So very diverse education is how I like to put it. Um, okay, can you tell me a little bit about medieval studies? Yes. So that was what I call my fun degree. I loved it. I had so much fun. So what happens at Notre Dame, you have a base curriculum. And so you have to take, you know, multiple Englishes, history, science, math, but you also have to take philosophy and theology. 
And so my, I think second theology was saints and art and icons. And I've always loved history. I've always loved kind of that time period. And I just dove a hundred percent in after that. I loved medieval studies. So I focused on, in my medieval studies, I focused on theology in art and the transition, particularly leading up the politics and theology leading up to the Reformation and how it was expressed in art. And I absolutely loved it. That's actually why I had the opportunity to study abroad at the University of St. Andrews. They let me do international economics and monetary policy while I was over there too, but that would not at all have been possible without medieval studies. And one of my favorite parts that I really like to joke about with medieval studies is we're supposed to take Latin. I mean, it was a requirement <laughs> and I, every single semester at registration convinced my advisor to let me take what I considered more fun classes than Latin. <laughs> and she agreed because my year three of us graduated with medieval studies majors. And so she didn't have too much room to, you know, say like, no, you're not going to get your major. And she has teased me since because I refused to, to take Latin. And then I went to law school <laughs> and there's so many things based in Latin, but my entire, they do a full, full university of Notre Dame graduation. And then everything has their own graduation. So like the business school, I had my graduation for my finance degree with the business school, but medieval studies is so small. They do it in a chapel and they do a traditional medieval graduation ceremony, which you might guess was completely in Latin. So <laughs> I don't really know what exactly happened, but. <laughs> that is honestly so cool. I wish well, so I do, I do a major in college. And so I wound up with um, a business management degree, like focusing specifically on like HR and um, an information systems degree focused like specifically on database uh, management, which is actually really great for what I do for my job now. But it, we didn't like, we didn't have all these really, really fun degrees. It was boring business stuff <laughs> I know and okay I did I, I loved my finance degree but my joke was always that when I needed a break from studying or doing finance homework then I would do my medieval studies so medieval studies it really was fun it was a blast and we had to take to graduate in it we had to take a master's level class as well and so I did one in the school of architecture that was issues in sacred architecture. And I knew zero about architecture. <laughs> and I was really lucky the architecture students helped me and I learned just so much, but it was something that, yeah, I never would have, I guess, I never would have thought, oh, this should just be my major because as much as I love it, I really have done nothing with my medieval studies major. But I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to do something that was that much fun while still feeling like I was getting a useful degree I would use the rest of my life with finance. Yeah, um, I got pity passed in my finance class. I had to take like a 300, so it's a third year finance class. Um, I 100% got a pity pass. Like that teacher did not want to see me again. They're like, 
oh, you're like going to be in um, database management. They're like, you don't need to know this shit. Pass. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. Um, listen, we had calculators to do it all for us. I don't even know how to use the damn calculator. That Matt, like I barely passed college calculus. <laughs> so. I mean, um, are you really using calculus in your everyday life, right? No, it would have listened. Okay, so it actually some of the stuff would have been helpful in like database management because like some of the formulas would have been good to know, but there are also formulas I can look up online. Man, I would love to talk a ton about the medieval studies because I love the way that like uh, culture and like modern like um, current day events influence art. that is like something that's so interesting to me don't think it's a great topic for a podcast but we will talk we will talk about that um when we're on a day where we're not recording because i think that's very interesting perfect okay so walk me through from like getting your undergrad to deciding to go to law school um i i want to know a little bit about like the application process and how all of that worked. So I am, I guess what I'll say that I, I've never done things, I guess what we'll call the traditional way. So what kind of happened is I, senior year, I found out, so I found out I had to get the backstory of this is I had terrible orthodontia as a kid. I mean, terrible. And that's what caused all of this. I basically got told that if I didn't get braces and get corrective jaw surgery, that all my teeth would fall out in a few years. So that was terrifying. And so I, a couple of days before my 21st birthday, got braces on again. So got to graduate college with braces. <laughs> and originally they thought maybe they were just going to have to, because it was, they had messed up my jaw joints. So they thought maybe they would just have to do the lower jaw surgery. And so I went through the regular OCIs, everything. And I actually had a job that I was planning to take when I graduated from Notre Dame in Manhattan, working for a fashion company. And that was kind of the plan of attack until the world and God had other plans. (laughs) And they decided that they needed to do full double maxillofacial surgery. So what that means is they ended up having to break my jaw in five places. I had a recovery time. This happened in August after I graduated and I started eating soft foods that next Thanksgiving. And so knowing that recovery time was coming up, I, I worked with the company in Manhattan wasn't able to make it work. They needed somebody sooner than, than I was able to do because of the surgery. And so I didn't completely know what I was doing when I graduated from college. And my mom said, you know, you don't really know what you're doing. Why don't you take the LSAT? <laughs> and okay. Yeah. Which she still is like, ah, see, look how well I know you. But (laughs) that is also a funny story because there's a lot of jokes about how I get distracted with my horses, but somehow it turns out well. And I, so I showed reining horses for years and I was at a show with my mom and I'd come home and I thought I had a week before the LSAT. Turns out it was the next day. 
So I had no idea. I will be totally honest. And I am not recommending this to anyone. I didn't even know the format of the test. So I was, you know, I was Googling it. I was, this was 2012. I was having my parents take a picture of me because you have to bring a picture in. And my older brother was living just about five minutes away at the time. <laughs> and he came over and it's like, oh my gosh, why are you people even letting her do this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, she graduated from college, just this is her deal, you know. So I took it and I surprisingly did really well. And then I was laying in bed with a broken jaw, my jaw wired shut. And I will just say I had a lot of time for introspection. And that's when I decided <laughs> with the skills that I have, with the analytical thinking and reasoning people skills, um, Western world experience, all of this, that I could do a lot for farmers and ranchers because I'd actually done in high school, I'd done a research project on urban sprawl and rural development and that kind of thing. So that's always been really interesting to me. And then with my finance degree, I thought I would love to do estate planning and help farmers and ranchers in estate planning. So my other big revelation, I guess we'll say, when I was in bed recovering was that I wanted to be a rodeo queen. So I kind of decided at the same time I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to be a rodeo queen, but I kind of didn't know what I was doing for either. However, I made the decision that I was going to only apply to Gonzaga because I wanted to live at home with my family, not only because it financially made sense, but I wanted to get to be around my family, ride my horses every day, all of that. So I just decided I was going to apply to Gonzaga and it worked out great. And I actually wrote my essay for that was not about being a cowboy, although it did have parts about it in it. It was the Pope Paul quote, if you want peace work for justice. And so that was a big part of kind of how I decided to go to law school and got everything put together. And I was very grateful. I got a fantastic academic scholarship uh, to go to law school. So that was really helpful, but that was kind of my odd, very roundabout journey to becoming a lawyer, I guess we'll say. I've always believed very deeply in justice and had a really strongly ingrained sense of right and wrong. So it, it really, big picture, it makes sense, but at the time it was just, it's funny because I don't think I would have taken the else out if my mom hadn't just said, oh, just do it. Just do it for me. It'll make me happy. It's like, okay, mom, sure. Why not? <laughs> your story of finding out the else out, you're like, oh, it's tomorrow. Sounds like me with every um, test I ever have taken in my whole entire life. Okay, well, so. I love that. And I also have to tell you, my best friends will crack up at this, but they have a running joke of hashtag Catherine things. And that is a very quintessential hashtag Catherine thing. <laughs> um, well, listen, I remember college exams, per like particularly, I mean, I didn't do school past my undergrad, but a lot of those are like a eh, lot like logic based like if you really like think about the question 
you can figure out the answer. And as long as you show up to the lectures, you will have been given the answers. See, and that's how the LSAT's completely logic based. And that's where I got really lucky is it is. It's very logical. And I think honestly, the challenge that a lot of people run into is getting overly worried and getting overly stressed about it. Yeah. So I pulled up because I didn't, I've never, I want to be a lawyer, but I've heard from a lot of people don't do it. Um, but I pulled up like what's on the LSAT and there's um, like logical reasoning and then analytical reasoning. I want to know about the logic games. I want to know what kind of logic games they're referring to. I'm not going to lie to you. I cannot remember anything about this. However, it it is. It's exactly what you said. It's logic. I mean, if you if you think about it and you think about it in the right context, it's not something that you necessarily will have had. To, you don't have to study. You have to think about it correctly, but it's not something where there's a, it's not like the bar exam, how there's multiple right answers, but one is more right than the other and it's substantive law. <laughs> That's a whole nother rabbit hole, but. <laughs> well, I've heard that, um law school itself doesn't it like teaches you how to think like a lawyer but it doesn't necessarily teach you yet all of the laws that you need to know it just does a good job of like shifting your mindset around arguments it definitely it, it doesn't the running joke is that law school does not teach you how to be a lawyer and i think that's incredibly accurate it just, and I mean, it can't in a lot of ways. And I wish there was a way to figure this out, but there are a lot of people with a lot more experience trying to figure this out that haven't, but it, it does. It teaches you the fundamentals, but it doesn't teach you how to actually be a lawyer and practice law. You kind of have to actually get into the trenches and start doing it. And I guess it's, it's, unusual in that way because I definitely at least I hope that like medical school and veterinary school you're actually hands-on learning things and they are trying to do more of that now in law school for example I worked in the in the low-income federal taxpayer clinic so I represented people who couldn't afford an attorney against the IRS. So I got to do a couple cases in the US tax court and it was really neat. I loved that. But so now you have to do some kind of like experiential learning, but it still it just doesn't it doesn't really teach you how to be a lawyer. You have to start being a lawyer. Well, I mean, to me that makes complete sense like the way you're phrasing. Maybe to some people listening it won't, but each like city state county township whatever is like has very like specific laws on specific things so like it wouldn't necessarily make sense to like teach you the laws about the state of idaho if you're gonna go if you're taking the bar in wyoming yes and and that's something that's a little unique so i also I took the ethics portion of the bar in Wyoming and I took the Montana state bar and then I was practicing in Idaho I'm now in Wyoming, but it's been very different, I guess, and especially in the last decade, I would say in being able to be licensed in multiple jurisdictions. It's interesting to me, just, I practice in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and 
just between those three jurisdictions, how different they'll be or how one state will have pre case precedent on point for a certain issue, but then not for a different issue, that kind of thing. It just blows my mind. Okay, so I, <laughs> I have a question about that. So like if there is this case that happens in Idaho and then it's like a case that like serves as precedent later down the line, right? Um, but something like very similar happens in another state, like one of the other states that you're licensed in, is it, does it not matter like at all period? Or are you allowed to refer to and be like, hey, why, why can't we look at this? Or does it just not matter because it's in a totally different state? So it's not binding precedent. However, if there is no precedent, which I'll be honest with you, in the three states I practice in, there are a lot of situations where there's not precedent on point. So the, you can cite to those cases as instructive essentially. So in like a court pleading, you're giving a judge the opportunity to look at what another state has done. It's not binding. However, it's better than nothing. That's, I guess that's probably the simplest way to put it. It's better okay, than nothing. <laughs> That makes sense. Um, so I'm gonna hop back for just a second because I wanna know more about this decision that you made. You just decided you wanted to be a rodeo queen. You said you'd been showing reining horses and stuff like that. So had you done any queen competitions before or were you just yeah. kind of were like, you know what, I'm gonna be a rodeo queen and a lawyer. You know, my mom will tell you, I just woke up one day, decided to be a rodeo queen. That's not exactly how it happened. More of how it happened is that when I had my job wired shut, I watched three movies because I thought I was going to get all of this stuff done. In reality, you're on so many painkillers and can't think or do anything with your life. <laughs> so I watched Phantom of the Opera, Eight Seconds. And a river runs through it on repeat. And two of my biggest inspirations coming out of all of this. So I wasn't allowed to be around my horses for a long time. So first of all, I love, and I still, and it kind of sounds silly, but the two, the two biggest inspirations for me to be a rodeo queen were Lane Frost and Bill Linderman. <laughs> and the reason is, you know, Lane's personality and ability and willingness to relate to people outside of the sport of rodeo and be a positive role model for kids and have time for everyone was huge for me. But also, I don't know if you know much about Bill Linderman, but nope. <laughs> I absolutely love Bill Linderman. He's just a fascinating, a great book. If anybody's interested in learning about Bill and how amazing he is, it's my address is heaven, the Bill Linderman story, but some of the, the highlights of why I admire him so much, he was so dedicated to the sport of rodeo and nothing stopped him from being involved in it. I mean, I, I think he broke his leg and ruptured his appendix in the same year. And so since he couldn't ride, he started judging and he ended up being secretary of the PRCA at one point. I know he was president. He might've been treasurer at one point. And then he drew out of the first NFR to help put it on. So instead of competing, he literally gave up that chance to make sure that the rodeo happened. 
And so, but for me, his willingness when he was injured and couldn't compete and couldn't be part of rodeo the way he wanted to, he found other ways to be part of the sport and to give back to the sport. That's kind of what sparked my interest in being a rodeo queen, as odd as that might sound. But then also I asked my mom, I said, all I want for my birthday is to go to Cheyenne Frontier Days. And I said, if my job's healed enough, can we go to Cheyenne Frontier Days? Because it's over my birthday. And, you know, I'd watch eight seconds so many times that I just wanted to go to Cheyenne. And my mom jokes, she made the mistake of saying, sure, if you plan the trip, I'll drive. <laughs> and we fly fished our way down, went for Cody, went to the rodeo. And I basically decided, you know, I saw all the state queens come here in Cheyenne at the rodeo and the Miss Frontiers. And so I was, that was my 23rd birthday. And that January, I competed in my first queen pageant. Oh, wow. I love that. And then what is kind of the process that you went through? Honestly, I had zero clue what I was doing for my first queen pageant, which is why I've tried to do so much to help girls to learn what to do. And I, I really, I, I think the, the biggest assets I had going for me are, I, I knew how to study. I was in law school. I, re- I just started my second semester of law school when I decided to compete, but my horsemanship skills, my willingness to talk in front of because I did not know. I mean, the pictures are hilarious. I did not know what I was doing, but, and I just wanted to do that title. That was my hometown rodeo, Spokane Interstate Rodeo. And I, I won, which was amazing, especially because now one of my very best friends, that's how we met was we competed against each other. And she jokes whenever I tell this story. I mean, she'd held titles and all of this and was like, what? She's never even competed before. (laughs) But we ended up being best friends. And then I just loved it too much. I loved it so much. So I decided to put my application in for Miss Radio Washington. So I won that title in January. So I was Miss Bocan Interstate Radio 2014. Threw my hat in the ring for Miss Rodeo Washington in October 2014. And in the meantime, I tried to learn everything. I reached out to people, tried to learn everything I could. And I competed actually pageant finished Saturday. And on Monday, I had my evidence midterm. So that was an adventure. But I will tell you that my Miss Rodeo Washington pageant very much to me same year. And definitely attribute it to willingness to work and take criticism and learn from anyone and everything because I went from not knowing anything going into my first pageant to winning every category at Miss Rodeo Washington, which was super exciting because it was my last year to run for Miss Rodeo Washington because of the age limits. So I was really grateful. I had one shot, so I had to make it count. And then, you know, as a state title holder, you run for Mr. Audio America. And the very Spark Notes version of the story, we had never had a Mr. Audio America from Washington. And 
it was funny because one of my, my really good friends who I call my uncle and he had never won a pair of spurs when he was rodeoing. He is like my rodeo mentor, just an amazing guy. And, but that was before a lot of rodeos started giving out spurs. And I told him that I wanted to go to Vegas and I was going to win a pair of spurs. I mean, I really wanted to win Miss Rodeo America, but at the time they gave out spurs for all the major categories. And so I was going to bring home spurs. Well, the year I competed was actually the first year that only Miss Rodeo America got a pair of spurs. So (laughs) I did get my spurs, but it just, I, it was an incredible experience, even just to compete for Miss Rodeo America for people who don't know it. When I competed, it was a full eight day pageant. You are completely sequestered. You don't have your cell phone, your TV. You don't get to talk to your family and you have your roommate, which I had the most amazing roommate, Miss Rodeo Wisconsin, Lydia. She is just wonderful. And it's a lot, it's emotionally draining eight days, but also there is a big educational aspect of it. So we have to take a written test. It's the only pageant system that requires a written test on anything and everything really. It's rodeo history, rodeo knowledge, current rodeo standings and equine science. So like vet tech level knowledge of equine science and multiple interview process. It, it, it is a lot and it's emotionally and physically exhausting, but it was truly incredible. And to bring the crown home to the state of Washington for the first time, a state with incredible rodeos, incredible cowboys and cowgirls. It just, that was really, really special and amazing. And I had the most fun, amazing, wonderful year of my life as Miss Rodeo America. Yeah, so I was really surprised um, when I learned, it was through one of my guests on this podcast, actually, that I learned um, what all you have to go through, because I'm like, okay, I just thought it was like horsemanship, which, you know, that's the only thing that like, I was like, oh, well, sure, that makes sense, right? But it's all of these other things, and then you go on, and if you win, you're then an ambassador for that entire program for a whole year, which comes with a lot of speaking engagements and like PR events and stuff like that. It's just stuff you'd never think about if that was not your world. <laughs> it, it is. And you know, I, so I won Miss Rodeo America less than two years after entering my first pageant. So I feel like it's pretty safe to say it wasn't really my world still at that point. Um, <laughs> but it, it is amazing. And I think when people start to learn not only what rodeo queens go through on the pageant side, but also what rodeo queens actually do in the job. One of the ways I've described it is we do public relations and marketing for rodeos, as well as anything to make the rodeo go more smoothly. And with that, I mean the pushing cattle, the anything like that. I helped sort cattle, wash horses, everything as Miss Rodeo America. But we're also the people, cowboys have to go to rodeos. I say we, I mean, husbands too, right? Uh, cowboys and, and cowgirls have to go down the road when they're competing and get to the next rodeo. So rodeo queens are the people who are at 4 a.m. radio and television interviews, who are visiting all the schools, handing out tickets, 
And, you know, there's such a big social media aspect. I was lucky enough, I was really still coming in on the precipice of a lot of that in that I was able to get Miss Rodeo America to really embrace social media. Weirdly enough, I was the first one that was actually allowed to post because in the past they'd had girls send everything into the office and they would post. And I think part of that was just not necessarily having the realization about how important real-time posting is. It was more looking at it from a safety perspective, which I totally understand and appreciate, but just kind of that, that shift. And it just was really fun for me to kind of come in at that time, as well as I, you know, I took a year and a half off of law school in order to first compete and then serve as Miss Rodeo America. And it was interesting because when I competed and when I was Miss Radio America, it was during the time that the PRCA was involved in the antitrust lawsuit. And it was really interesting for me and I loved it. And the PRCA did an amazing job of utilizing me as a mouthpiece and the fact that there were rumors nonstop, just, you know, in everything that happens, especially when there's big gossip, like a lawsuit. And so I would get calls from the PRCA saying like, okay, we're going to announce this tomorrow. This is what actually is going on because they recognized that I was a person who was out there at all these rodeos that could actually <laughs> tell people the truth about what was going on. That's really interesting. Cause like you have to consider, especially with social media, you have to consider like, okay, is it safe for everyone to know? Like, this is exactly where this person is. This is exactly what they're wearing. Anyone could watch your Instagram story. Anyone could show up somewhere so like from a a safety perspective that's something like probably a lot of people would have never considered yes exactly so it was interesting it was definitely a very interesting shift and obviously we've come so far just in the last five years in social media even since then so yeah for sure so what is what was your favorite like part like thing that you got to do as um Miss Radio USA. It's so hard. I mean, I had so many amazing experiences. By far, the best part was all the people I met, but trying to narrow it down to, I mean, a couple experiences. I'm sorry. I just don't even think I could pick one. Um, I, I absolutely loved something that was really special to me was I ended up at a rodeo. There was no closing planned and it was a roster rodeo. And Cotton, you know, P.T. Barnum of Rodeo, the man loves a good show and is absolutely a legend, has a history of involvement in, in Miss Rodeo America. And he last minute goes, hand me the flag and get on my horse. And it's like, Cotton, what are you talking about? So we rode double carrying the American flag <laughs> to the arena to Happy Trails. And that was just such an iconic moment. I absolutely adore. I, I just love that. That was so much fun. But another one that was really special just because it was kind of so much coming full circle is that year, it was a crazy year for, for Sage Kimsey and Sage and Alexis had become good friends of mine on the road. They're two of the most down to earth kind people you will ever meet and just very supportive people as well. And Sage had had a tough start to his NFR that year in 2016. And we had decided earlier in the year that I was going to give him his gold buckle. 
Now, normally, Mr. Rodeo America doesn't even touch gold buckles. I mean, they go straight from Montana Silversmith to the world champion. It, Wait, okay, can we pause for just a second? I have a question. Yeah, absolutely. How, okay, so earlier you mentioned spurs, but now we're talking about buckles. Who gets spurs and who gets buckles? Okay, so Mr. Rodeo America is a whole different award progress, right? So. At Mr. Rodeo America, Montana Silversmiths actually does a buckle as well as spurs for Mr. Rodeo America. And so I have my Mr. Rodeo America buckle as well as my Mr. Rodeo America spurs and absolutely love them. But at the national finals rodeo, the world champions get their gold buckles, the world championship buckles, which I mean, it's the most coveted buckle in rodeo. But it's at the end of the national finals, it's on TV, it's crazy hectic, and these are very valuable buckles. So they honestly are kept safe and given straight to the contestants, basically on TV. (laughs) And so Sage literally after he got bucked off one night and was like, oh my gosh, I'm ruining this whole plan. I mean, he's so sweet, but we were standing there, it came down to his bull ride round 10. And he, he rode and I was standing back there in the alley with some of the PRCA and some of the Montana silversmith people and they knew the plan and all of a sudden Sage rode, we found out he won the world and they literally threw the buckle at me and I sprinted down the alley and got to give him his buckle and give him a hug and that was just really special for me because not only the moment of giving a world championship champion their buckle but also for it to be my friend, having such a major accomplishment. I mean, that's just something I, I know I'm going to cherish forever. So. Yeah, that is, that is an incredibly special moment. It's all about the relationships to me, I guess. That's the best way to put it. Yes. Well, I mean, in the older that I get, the more I realize that like, it's, and this sounds, uh, Maybe this sounds bad, but it, it it is really about like the relationships that you build. It's about like the network that you have, whether it's personally or professionally. Like, it's nice that I have a friend who's who was like my roommate in college, and now she's a lawyer in the state of Nevada, right? So I have someone I can call there where if I'm like, hey, I have this question for you. You know, that's, that's the biggest thing to me about rodeo. One of the biggest gifts is that community and family. And the fact that almost anywhere I go in the country, I know either I can call someone I know who lives there or someone I know knows someone there. And, you know, we're just, we're so open to helping each other out and saying, sure, I've never met you, but you know, this person and I know this person. So come stay at my house. Let me feed you dinner. Let me that's something I think that is so special about, I mean, the Western industry in general, but especially rodeo. And it's something that we're getting so far away from. And I think the rest of society that it makes it so special that we still have that in rodeo where we have these friendships or these friends of a friend. And it's a lot like what I said about Notre Dame, you meet somebody from Notre Dame, I mean, I met somebody when I was in Ireland, I met somebody from Notre Dame and it's like, boom, we're friends. We both went to Notre Dame and that's kind of how rodeo is. And you just kind of know that you're going to take care of each other. And I love that. I think it's so special. That is so special. Well, I realized that I reached out to, there was a photo shoot that I did in 20, 
16 maybe at the reno rodeo um with one of the brand owners and one of the cowboys that was there and when i started this podcast i like reached back out to the cowboy who i literally met at a photo shoot one time in 2016 and was like hey don't know if you remember me i'm so-and-so we did this do you want to come on my podcast and talk about being a bull rider and he was like heck yeah i'll come on your podcast and he was one of my first guests on my podcast and i'm like it it was just nice like being able to just like reach out and essentially being like warmly welcome to being like yeah anything you need i'll come on i'll talk about being a bull rider whatever you want love it that's what it's all about yes okay um i would love to talk a little bit about your rodeo advantage business yes so i come from the one thing that I do come by, you know, very honestly, might not have been born into egg, but I definitely was born into entrepreneurship. Um, we were talking actually on my dad's side of the family. I'm a third generation entrepreneur, my grandma, my parents, and then myself. And I just, I love rodeo. I can't keep myself away from it. Yes. I learned so much and I wanted the opportunity to turn back around and give a hand up to the people who were following in my footsteps, whether it was with media and rodeo or as a rodeo queen or anything like that so that they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And there really aren't as many resources as I wish there were for rodeo and particularly rodeo queens. So I started doing that coaching. I did media for multiple rodeo contestants as well and absolutely love that but what I did this past fall and as one of my proudest moments is I came out with digital guides that rodeo queens can download and learn and start it's a starting place and there hasn't been anything like this for rodeo queens so it was really really exciting for me and yeah, I just, I, I love it. I do a lot of one-on-one coaching as well, which is really, it's something my heart is really in because I love having the opportunity to get to know girls and be involved in their journey towards their title, because I'm able to see so much more than just that title. I'm able to see their personal growth, their maturing it's absolutely wonderful to me. And then I also, I serve as a clinician. I host my own clinics and serve as a clinician for other people's clinics. And it's just something I, I really love. I love teaching. I love giving back. And I learned so much from being a rodeo queen that to help others learn those life skills. I mean, I learned so much about the interview process that's helped me in a professional setting, in a job interview, or the public speaking. I, I honestly joked that at one point when I was in court all the time as a lawyer, that actually I would argue that being a rodeo queen helped me more to learn how to be in court than law school did because I wasn't afraid to talk off the cuff and I wasn't afraid to talk in front of people. And that's the most stressful part in being in court. And I didn't have that same level of stress just because of my experience as a queen. I love that. I was talking to a friend of mine and she was like, nothing will help better prepare you for public speaking than speaking to a room 
of like four to six year olds. She was a uh, cheerleading coach. I was uh, for a while too. Speaking to a room of four to six year olds because they will just ask you literally whatever they're thinking. They'll be like, why is your lipstick on your teeth? <laughs> why, like, why do you talk like, why, like, if you're talking, like, why do you have a funny voice? Why do you have a funny accent? And you're just like, nothing will get that fear out of, of people out of you better than a room of four to six year olds. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you have to learn how to, re- how to respond in a, in a way, knowing that they're going to repeat whatever you say to their parents. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, what are some of the things like that you host clinics on for these ladies? So it, it's ranged in a lot of directions, but one of the biggest things that I like to hold clinics on is public speaking and media. And that's something that really I, I love to do in person because it gives it, it gives people the opportunity to actually practice it and get up in person and talk and practice little tricks and all of that, and then try to implement them and see how they go. I just, that's something that's so hard to teach remotely, I guess, that the public speaking and media is something that is so important to me. And teaching people how to do, whether it's a radio interview or a television interview, how to be confident, how to take control of that interview, how to make sure that you're controlling the narrative. Those are things that I love and I think are so important overall, not just in rodeo, but in our whole agricultural industry to make sure we're cognizant of what we're sharing and we're advocating and being positive about our industry. I, that's a very interesting point. That very last point that you mentioned, I was talking to somebody, um, last week and they mentioned, they're also, um, a podcast host and they mentioned they want to bring on some people who, um, are like anti-ag because they want, they genuinely want to like open up a conversation with them and have a conversation with them about like what their beliefs are and why they believe that he's like, maybe he's like maybe i can get them to ship take a step in our direction he's like or maybe they'll tell me something that's true that i've never heard before like that's the truth about our industry that i didn't know i don't know everything you know um and he was said that a lot of the people who he'd approached um felt very very burned by some of the big um advocates in particularly on instagram but in like the social media sphere and I, it's really, really hard, I think, to have like a really like pro ag or pro rodeo message when it feels like the whole world's against you. But when we're really, really loud and aggressive with it, sometimes it comes off as not positive. Yes, (laughs) exactly. And that's the thing is, is having that positivity. There's so much good there's so much positive about egg and about the Western industry, but it is. It's society, social media, everything is at a point right now where things are controversial, things are that maybe shouldn't be controversial. People are, and I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if this has been exaggerated by our use of technology in some ways with the COVID pandemic and everybody staying home at one point so much of this with not necessarily feeling like we have to be accountable for what we say (laughs) 
and mm-hmm. being, I guess what I would call a keyboard warrior. And it's so tough because there are a lot of wonderful people who have great things to say, who might ne- not necessarily feel comfortable saying them just because so many people are so antagonistic. It's tough. It is. I think it's, um, a combination of like ease of access. So like, uh, I live halfway across the country from you, but you were just a quick Instagram DM away. Right. Uh, so ease of access that way. And then also some of it is like, okay, the last 18 months we've spent largely inside either working remotely or not being able to work at all, depending on exactly what it is that you do. And a lot of us have been spending a lot more time on social media. I know I have, and I ha- I work a full-time job outside of doing this podcast and all of the other stuff that I do online. I also have like a, you know, 40 or 50 hour a week day job. Right. So I think it's a combination of those things that, and there's a lot more people who are internet sleuths, um, who believe that they're doing deep dives on research when all they need to do is reach out to their local farmer or rancher and have a conversation. But instead they'll just look on Google, not even like Google Scholar, they'll just like look on whatever is their first Google article and take that as truth without digging a little deeper or investigating the resources that are easily available. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And it's tough because we do, we have more access to information at this point than at any other point in history. But at the same time, it allows for such a dissemination of inaccurate information, no matter what the subject is. That, But for some reason, I guess what challenges and frustrates me is the willingness of people to believe what's posted on the internet that just drives me nuts <laughs> rather than doing independent research or like you said calling a farmer and rancher you're talking to them one-on-one that kind of thing I, I, you know yeah the the being less willing to interact in person what in in your opinion what is um what's something that is like a quick tip that could really help with public speaking like a lot of people will say like picture your audience in their underwear or something like that. Um, But what's something you found that kind of works really well for you? Something that just, I think is amazing. Even if you have a scripted speech, nobody knows where you're going with it. So as a rainer, I always likened it to freestyle raining. Yes, I have to get the required maneuvers in there, but no one knows when I'm going to do them. They don't know if I do them out of order. And that's the biggest thing for me that I think helped me and I think helps other people to realize if you mess up when you're public speaking, the only way anyone is going to know is if you tell them. If you tell them by stumbling over your next sentence or getting nervous or giggling or anything like that, it takes so much pressure off because you realize, hey, they're going to have no idea if I start talking about something I wasn't planning on talking about, or if I say these topics out of order, or that really helped me. And then my other piece of advice is rather than trying to script the whole thing out is to have a thought about the beginning and end, 
But then think of three main points that you want to discuss and talk about. And if you have trouble with that, tell personal stories and tell a story from your experience because you lived it, you know the experience, you don't have to remember it, you can talk about it just because you lived it. So that's probably my biggest advice. Don't try to script yourself out and remember that you're literally the only one who knows where you're going with the speech. So if you mess up, they honestly won't know unless you give it away. Yes, I think that is such good um, advice. I know I've done public speaking at like a multitude of events. Um, I mean, very small events, but I remember one time for one of my classes in college, we had, it was a communications class, so it was a speech class. And we had to pick something and I was like, I'll pick this thing that I'm really passionate about. So cue me giving four different speeches on four different um, true crime things through the semester. and I would get so nervous before each one. I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna throw up. I'm gonna poop my stomach out. I don't know what I'm gonna do. And then I would get in front of there and I'd be like, right, murder. And it all clicked. Okay, I just love that you brought that because I recently, yeah, I watched, I can't remember if I told you now, but I watched the People versus OJ Simpson and I've just been on a true crime, I don't know, fiesta lately i don't know what you'd call it when it's true crime but <laughs> it's my okay so i work a regular day job right all i do is listen to podcasts all day um so i've got like a couple of like fun um i guess fandom ones so, like i listen to a harry potter podcast there's a twilight podcast that i really like um and a couple others that are like in that same vein and then there's a couple of Western podcasts that I like. So like I listen to, I do not listen to my own podcast. I listen to it way too much when I'm editing it. So I don't listen to it again. Um, but I listen to Courtney D. Hoff's podcast. I listen to um, State of Mind. I listen, and there's a couple others that I listen to. And then I'm not even joking. There's like 30 true crime podcasts that I listen to throughout the week. Okay, well, you're probably gonna have to send me the names of those. I would love it. <laughs> okay, I will. Do what are some that you already listen to? I don't listen to that many podcasts, honestly. So <laughs> I need to really up my game. I really need to up my game. So send me a list. It'll be my to-do list. I'll screen record all the ones that I, or I'll send you links to all the ones that I listen to. I wish I could like, you know, on Apple Music, how you can make a playlist and just send it to someone I wish you could do that for podcasts. I wish I could. Yes. I'm going to send a letter to Apple. <laughs> please tell them. Fix this for us, please. <laughs> no, I cannot. Okay. I'll have to ask because I've got like a true crime station. Um, but okay, well, it was worth a shot. Um, so yeah, I think like don't script yourself out and like remembering that no one else, unless someone practiced with you for hours and hours and hours, no one else in the room knows 
what is supposed to be in this speech that you're giving. Absolutely. Having the confidence and in some ways, so much of public speaking is fake it how you make it, fake it until you make it. Okay, this wraps up our kind of first part. Next week, we'll talk more about lost stuff. But if someone wants to follow along with you on social media, where can they do that? Yes, I would say Instagram is my probably number one use of social media. It's at Catherine.merk. And my first name, because there's 12 ways to spell Catherine, is K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. And Merck's M-E-R-C-K. So Instagram, uh, Facebook, I have Rodeo Advantage by Catherine Merck's, my public Facebook page. I'd love for you to all follow. But those are probably the best ways. I have rodeoadvantage.com, all of that. So feel free to reach out to me on any of those channels. I'd be happy to talk with people, whether it's about rodeo queening, going to law school, being a lawyer, any of that. I would be absolutely happy to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.